Thank you for tuning in to Tulane Caiaphas Podcast, where we hope you will be instructed to know God, inspired to love God, and challenged to obey God. I'm Matt DeGear. Today's episode is my sermon from Connect, Monday, March 15th. The title is God Gets Angry. Enjoy. Okay. How many of you have ever made your parents really mad? Shelby's never made her parents really mad. <laughs> so I remember this one time, um, I, had, I had met this kid, and um, I don't remember where I met him. But, um, no, I remember where I met him, but I don't remember how long I had known him before I got invited to his house to play video games. And my dad did not know who he was, but thankfully, well, I don't know if it was good or not, but my dad decided it was okay to let me go and play video games at his house. But he didn't know where, my, where this guy lived. His name was Carl. Um, I told my dad he lives up on the hill. Um, and where we were actually sitting in this little valley, and there were hills going in different directions. So he assumed one thing opposite without what I meant, apparently. But he also told me to be back at a certain time, which I think was about 1 o'clock um, in the afternoon. I was about 8 or 9 years old at this time. So the problem is, I went to play video games. And me and video games go together very well. Um, and so we don't like to separate. And so 1 o'clock came and went very, very, very quickly. And it was probably 3.30 before I went home. Um, and so my parents actually had no idea where I was the whole time, which was not good. Um, we did not have cell phones back then. I didn't have a cell phone. And even if, I, even if we did, I was eight. I didn't have a cell phone. So, but nothing really happened that evening. And so I didn't really think anything of it until a few days later, I was in the car with my dad, and we were driving up the hill. This is where you could drive. This was in the total opposite direction. And he's like, he's clearly angry, and he says, where's your friend's house? And I'm, I'm totally clueless at this point. Like, I have no idea what he's talking about. Like, what do you, what do you mean? What friend? I don't have any friends that live on this hill. And then he's like, he's getting very, 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 very angry. He's like, your mom knocked on all these houses. Where were you? And um, so, yeah, I made my dad really, really mad. Um, why do you think my dad was so mad? Oh, you can think about that. But anyways, moving on. <laughs> Recently at Foundations, uh, Michaela asked this question. She said, do you want your kids to be afraid of you? And my I mean, initial reaction is, well, of course, no. I don't want my kids to be afraid of me. But as I think about it, I do want my children to be very uncomfortable doing what they know is wrong in my presence. And even beyond my presence, I want them to revere and obey my word. Why? Well, sometimes they're really annoying and I just really want them to be quiet. Um, <laughs> but that's usually not the reason. Usually the reasons go far beyond that. Like, I want to protect them from hurting themselves. You need to stop that and not touch the burning, flaming oven because you might you know, die or something like that. Um, I want to protect others from their foolishness, their, their bad words and their bad actions. So I need to protect the brothers from each other. I need to tell that you are not allowed to speak to your mother that way. That's hurtful and rude. I also want to protect them from in their future. If you act like this, if you treat people like this, you will fail at life. And so I want them to be very concerned about doing what they know is wrong in my presence. And I want them to revere what I tell them. Now, sometimes I just say silly things, and hopefully they won't revere that. We know. You get the picture. Now, in, this, in the Bible, um, we get the idea of fearing God. 
you, you may hear this, and um, I think this is, this is what motivated Michaela's question. What does it mean to fear God, right? Um, well, let's look at Exodus 20, verse 20. This is right after God had given Moses the Ten Commandments for the first time, and God's presence is around the mountain. There's like lightning and smoke, and everyone's freaking out. So they had, and they had recently just come out of slavery in Egypt. They had been delivered from the Egyptians to ten plagues, and then they crossed the Red Sea. And so now the people are scared that God is present. And what does Moses say? Now, is, it, is it on the screen? I can't see the screen. Good. Okay. Do not be afraid. God has come to test you, so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Hmm. Let's look at Psalm 25, verses 12 through 14. Who then are those who fear the Lord? He will instruct them in the ways they should choose. They will spend their days in prosperity, and their descendants will inherit the land. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. So fearing God, then, it's not about being frightened of God. But it's about being trustworthy with what God values. It's about being a person of humility and obedience to God's word. Because God confides in those who fear him. When you fear the Lord, you have guidance and direction for how to live your life in the right way. So it's this idea of revering and honoring what God says as true. Not just giving like mental assent, like, oh yeah, God said it, I believe it. But like, God said it, I do it. It motivates my life, and so then I have light from the Lord, because I listen to him and I revere him. Now, the fact still remains that God is not to be trifled with. And you could ask the Egyptians about that. Um, they experienced the ten plagues from God as he was convincing them that they must let his people go, culminating in the tenth plague where the firstborn son of every family died. And then when he led the people, the children of Israel, through the Red Sea, they all get through, and then Pharaoh and his army is like, we're going to get our slaves back. And the water washes them all away. So God is not to be trifled with, but the point is not to be afraid. Now, back to the idea of parents. Parents can get mad about a lot of different stuff, right? Uh, parents get mad because their kid gets a bad grade. Parents get mad because their kid rides the bench in sports. Like, why isn't my kid on the field? He's the best player. It's like, no, he's not. That's why he's not on the field. You know, people get mad. Or, you know, um, the other day I was at my son's soccer game, and he, he got fouled. And so I yelled at the ref, like, how is that not a foul? I wasn't actually mad, but it was, I kind of wanted, I'm, I'm trying to teach Lucas it's not okay to push the other players in soccer. And when he gets pushed to the ground by the girl that's like 50% bigger than him, um, I want a foul to be called. Um, <clears throat> now, so parents get mad about a lot of silly things. Parents also get mad about things like their child gets bullied. Parents get angry when their children get abused. What kind of parent never gets angry? I would say that is the parent who doesn't really care about their child. Now, the thing is, God then is a good, good father, right? God is the best parent that we could ever imagine. So, because of that, his love is higher and wider and deeper than what we could possibly imagine. Like, if your parents love you really, really well, that's like the faintest glimmer of the Father's love for us. But also then, his anger burns hotter than any earthly parents. 
Moving on to Exodus 34. So after, after Moses gets the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, um, he brings them down and like, it's like, you shall have no other gods before me and don't make for yourself any graven images. And while he's up there talking to God, what do they do? You guys know? remember? They make a golden cow and they worship the golden cow. Which sounds so ridiculous. But the thing is, I was, I was praying beforehand today and um, I was going through the Ten Commandments. This Lord, check my heart. And I just sense the Spirit speak to me, like this idea of making graven images. How often do I cheat God's Word and not allow God to be the God, the living, free God that is revealed in the Scriptures, and instead try to replace Him with the God that fits my cultural conception, the God that fits what makes me comfortable? So they fell to that trap, and they had worshipped a golden calf. And well, God got really angry. Angry? God got really angry, and Moses got really angry. Moses got so angry that he threw the tablets on the ground, and they shattered into pieces. And like these were written by the finger of God. And so he has to go back up the mountain in Exodus 34 and gets new tablets with the Ten Commandments written on them again. And what really is cool happens here, though, is the Lord shows His glory to Moses. Moses says, "We're not going forward." unless we know that you are with us. You said you forgave us, but we need to know that you are with us. And so skipping down to verse 6, the Lord, the Lord proclaims his name in front of Moses, and he, this is what he says his name is. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished, he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. Now, this first sentence is one of the most beautiful lines in all of Scripture. I love it so much. This is what I know and believe about God. And this is actually, this, this passage here is the most often repeated passage in all of the Bible. It's repeated and riffed on by, by the psalmists and the prophets over and over and over again. Like, this is the, the foundational revelation of what is the character of God. But then, like, why do these lines have to be there? He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children and the sin for the sin of their parents to the third and the fourth generation. Like, I don't, I'm not a big fan. Well, let's go a little deeper with this. So this semester, um, Chi Alpha is trying to lead people through reading through the minor prophets, which starts in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament all the way through the end of the Old Testament. And this is part of a plan that would take us through the Bible, the entire Bible, every two years. So I just wanted to put that up on the screen because um, that's, that's really cool. It's a great opportunity to read in community. And I'm going to draw on some of these prophets for the sake of what we continue to talk about here. I'm actually jumping ahead a little bit. I'm going to talk about Nahum and Micah. Um, Micah starts this week, and then Nahum comes up after that. Um, so let's start by looking at how Nahum begins his prophecy. Nahum 1, verses 1 through 9. A prophecy concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. So Nineveh is the, is the place where Jonah was commanded to go. If you're familiar with the story of Jonah and the big fish, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, one of the biggest empires at the time, and they were horrible. They were just plain cruel and awful. And then Nahum was an Elkishite, and I don't actually know what that means, but I'm guessing it means he was from Elkosh, or one of his ancestors were named Elkosh. So, this is what he has to prophesy. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. 
The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His ways in the whirlwind and the storm and the clouds and the dust are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Basin and Carmel wither and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. Wow. That is quite the riff on that passage from Exodus 34. We see the goodness of the Lord, his grace, his love abounding in his goodness here, but it is also really focusing in on his wrath. So the question I have, two questions really, why is punishing the guilty part of the core of God's being? Now why is God so angry? And ultimately, that's because God loves justice and God loves his children. As I said, Nineveh was a very, very cruel empire. I mean, I haven't really heard of any empires that were nice to the, to the people that they conquered, but Nineveh was exceptionally cruel. Um, all the surrounding peoples hated Nineveh. They didn't just fear them, they, they hated them. So God was protecting his people. Nineveh needed to be brought to judgment. Um, earlier this week, I was reading in Matthew chapter 18. Actually, maybe it was this morning. Um, and, and Jesus tells us, he says, you know, the world is in a bad way because there's temptation all the time. But woe, like pay attention, warning to the one through whom temptation comes. If anybody tempts a little child and throws them off the path, it'd be better that a bulldozer was tied around their neck and they'd thrown into the sea. Like, it's serious words. Then he continues, he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Or if your right foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away, because it's better to enter into life without your hands or feet, or enter into life blinded, than to go into hell with your full body. God's anger is real, and it's, it's scary. Who then is the subject of God's anger? So the next prophet we're looking at is Micah. Um, Micah was the prophet directly preceding Nahum in the Bible. Um, and uh, he has just an uncanny manner of demolishing religious pride. Uh, he's speaking to Judah and Israel. And um, of course, he wasn't alone in that ability. Uh, I encourage you to read Amos chapter 5 or Isaiah chapter 1 if you want to see a prophet go off on religious people. It's pretty intense. It's like as fun as Matthew 23 um, when Jesus goes off on the religious people. But, so here he goes in, in the beginning of his book. We have Micah on the screen? Yes. Okay. Verses 3 through 6. It begins a lot like Nahum. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him, and the valleys split apart, like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? 
is it not Samaria? Now, Samaria is the, was the capital of the northern kingdom. After Solomon, there was David who killed Goliath. Very popular story. He's a great king. Then his son Solomon was super wise and wrote the Proverbs. And then after, after Solomon, the kingdom broke into two. Because as, as wise as Solomon was, he was also kind of a jerk. And so people didn't want to follow his son anymore. Um, and so you had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Jerusalem, where the temple was, where God's presence was to dwell, was in the southern kingdom. So the new northern kings were like, uh, we don't really want our people going to Jerusalem to worship God. That's bad for our politics. That's bad for our power. So what are we going to do? We'll build a temple in Samaria. And what will we put there? Golden cows. <laughs> We'll call it Yahweh. We'll say this is the God of Israel, but it'll just be some golden cows. So go to, go to Samaria and worship the golden cows, and it's just the same as if you went to Jerusalem and worshiped the living God. And so this was the transgression of Jacob. Big deal. Now this is where it gets wild. What is Judah's high place? The high places were illicit places of worship, where most often idols were worshipped. So what is the southern kingdom? Where is their illicit place of worship? Jerusalem, the place of the temple. So Micah's saying, you might as well go worship the golden, the golden cows, because your worship is fake, and it's false, and you are just as liable to the judgment of God as you think those northern Sumerians are. It's very intense. It's a similar, Jesus teaches that all who sin are subject to the fires of Gehenna, is the Greek word he uses for hell. We talked about in Matthew 18, or he talks about anybody who causes someone else to sin might as well be drowned in the sea. He says in, in the Gospel of John that anyone who sins is a slave of sin. And the wages of sin are death. Now, the Apostle Paul, I think he follows very, very well in Micah's footsteps, and he utterly demolishes all self-righteousness. If you really feel like you, you got your stuff together, uh, read Romans 1 through 3. And the Apostle Paul will just annihilate your sense of self-righteousness. Um, he ends with Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. But there's another place he talks about this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. He's talking to the, the believers in the, the city of Ephesus. And he says to them, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, which you used to live in when you followed the ways of this world, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That would be the devil. So he's following in Jesus' footsteps, who basically told his audience, you're all sons of the devil. Um, and they didn't like that very much. Um, so Paul says the same thing to the people in Ephesus. Before you knew God, you were worshiping the devil. But then he, he does this really cool thing. He says, all of us, he includes himself here, all of us also lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Which is, again, it's similar to what Micah has to say at the end, towards the end of his book in chapter 7. This is, he's basically speaking in the place of Jerusalem or of the, the Israelites to those who would, who would try to take them over, probably to Nineveh. Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. 
Because I have sinned against him, I will bear the Lord's wrath. There's this honesty, like, I, I deserve God's wrath. Until he pleads my case and upholds my cause, he will bring me out into the light. I will see his righteousness. So the one who is bringing judgment is also the one who can forgive. Again, I already mentioned Romans 3.23. This is where the Apostle Paul says we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of God's glory, which is kind of a riff off Isaiah 53, verse 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've all gone our own way rather than staying, walking in the way of the Lord, who taught us the right way to live. We've given up on God's standard, and we've gone our own way. And, you know, maybe... Maybe God could just leave us alone, right? Just like, oh, you're going to go your own way. Mm, have fun. Go your own way. I mean, the prodigal son, that's kind of what happened. He just went his own way until eventually he came back. But he also, he faced wrath while he was away. Now, the, the first problem with God just letting us go off and do our own thing would be it's theft. We are created by God for a purpose. We belong to God to do what God has commissioned us to do, which is to bring his good rule, his goodness, into the earth everywhere we go. And so every time we fail to bring his goodness to fruition in and through our lives, we are stealing from God what is rightfully God's. It's like if you walked into somebody's home and they have a, a, like a display case of, of things that are valuable to them. They're like, I'm just going to take this one because I like it. And you walk, like, you can't, you can't do that. And each of one of us, Ephesians 2.10 says it almost, almost just like this. We are meant to be trophies in the display case of God. Not so we're like, look how great I am. But because he wants to celebrate what he's created. We belong to him. And so we cannot see, oh, there's my picture. I'm just going to steal that God and I'm going to take it and do whatever I want with it. It's theft. And theft brings punishment. So that's the first reason that God can't just let us walk away and do our own thing. The second thing is, um, it would be un un unloving. If we go our own way, there's only one end. The end is death. There is no goodness apart from the Lord. And then, if we're just going our own way, here's the thing. It would be, maybe it would be okay is if, if I like came up with, I have like my own understanding of what I think is good, you know, what I think is right and just. And if I lived up to that, like if I treated people the way that I want them to treat me, and I just, I did that. Like maybe it's not the same as God's standard, but I lived up to my standard. That'd be okay, maybe. But I don't. And neither do you. Like each of us in this room, we have standards of how we think we should behave and how we think others should behave. And none of us lives up to our own standard of goodness. So, like, we, there's no way possible that we're ever going to live up to God's perfect standard. We like to think, in our culture today, we like to think that God owes us grace and forgiveness. That God should stop all the bad things from happening in the world. That's what God should do. But the truth is that God doesn't owe us anything. He's given us life. He's given us everything. But we've stolen it away from him. And if God does owe us anything, it's wrath and anger and judgment. That's what we've all earned with our lives. But he is rich 
in love and mercy. As Micah brings his book to an end, he says, Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will treat, tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. This is what God wants to do. This is God's plan and his desire and his purpose. God is the best parent in the entire universe. God's love is beyond measure, right? God's commitment to upholding justice stretches beyond the heavens. He's shown his commitment to loving us and his commitment to justice through the cross of Jesus. He would go to any length to make sure that we might have access to receive his love again. And he will go to any lengths to make sure that justice is fulfilled. God doesn't play any favorites. But his love is jealously protective. The good thing is, he's jealously protective of you when people do you wrong. The hard part is, he's jealously protective of everyone that we wrong. Through our words, through our attitudes, through our failure to bring goodness to them that they have been created to receive from us. God will not look the other way when his children suffer wrong, and God will discipline his children so that they will learn to do good. Without the intervention of God's compassion, through Jesus, we simply we can't be saved. But God does desire to restore us and to deliver us from the consequences of our wrongdoing, from the devastation that others have wrought upon us, and from the necessary judgment that we deserve. So tonight, I want to just, I want to call everyone in the room, call us out, that we need to, we just stop stealing from God. We belong wholly and completely to him. We do not have a right to do with our lives simply as we please. The good news is, as we do what God, what pleases God, I believe you'll find the greatest pleasure and the greatest joy you could ever imagine. Because every good gift is found in him. We need to stop making excuses for sin. Um, we, we tend to have this idea that, like, well, I'm only human, which makes sense when you lose your keys or when you, you leave your cell phone somewhere or you forget to meet somebody because you're, you're human and you're finite and you forget things. But when you do someone wrong, we don't have an excuse. It's not, I'm only human. There's nothing about being human that forces us to do wrong things to other people, and especially if we claim to have the Spirit of God living in us. We're not only human. We're Spirit-inspired, Spirit-empowered people of God who ought to live in love at all times. And finally, we need to stop taking grace for granted. God doesn't owe us grace. If he owed us grace, it wouldn't be grace. It would be the wages that we've earned. But Paul makes it very clear that the wages that we've earned is death. Because we've lived a life of death rather than living the life that God has created us for. So as we just bring this to a conclusion in time response, this is from Hosea. Um, and actually, I'm going to read the whole, the whole thing. I was going to drop a part out, um, verse 2, but I'm going to read the whole thing here. Hosea 6, verses 1 through 3. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us. 
that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. Let's pray.